This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about international business and globalization and the effects these have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent decades. Today on Interlinks, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to delve a little bit deeper into the world of the supply chain. And why? Well, because the topic of globalization that we discuss on this program is underpinned and made possible by the international supply chains that function day in, day out to fulfill our material needs, including our food, our clothing, our medicines, and all the services that we depend on to make our life what it is, including the smartphone in your pocket, the cholesterol tablets you take, and the bottle of wine on your dinner table. So to do this, I'm joined by three colleagues of mine from the Society for the Advancement of Consulting, all independent consultants and thought leaders in their own fields for this supply chain informal chat or tertulia, as I like to call it. So my guests are uh, Art Koch, president of Arthur Koch Management Consulting in Miami, Florida. Welcome, Art. Hello. Dave Gardner, founder of Dave Gardner Biz, a consultancy based in the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. And Diane Garcia, president of Lorraine Consulting based in Portland, Oregon. And welcome, Diane. Good morning, Patrick. Uh, welcome and thanks uh, for being here with us today, guys. And thanks especially to you guys from the West Coast for what I think is 7 a.m. Uh, for you as, <laughs> as we record this. So, Art, if I, can, uh, if I can start with you, just like globalization itself, international supply chains are going through a period of flux. Uh, due to many factors, as we know, technological, ecological, sociopolitical, and so on. Uh, and indeed, because of the processes, recent processes such as Brexit, trade tensions between the US and China, and the arrival of COVID, you now hear the term supply chain been bandied about by politicians in the newspapers, TV, radio presenters on CNN and BBC and Fox News and so on. So Art, could you set out just for us in simple terms what supply chains are? What are the components and why do you think they're in the news so much these days? Uh, to me, the supply chain is from taking raw material out of the earth or recycling material and moving that through the manufacturing or the value-added processes through distribution and getting it to your customer, uh, all the different nodes of transportation along the way. And then once the customer uses it and they're done using it, getting it back into the recycling process. Uh, why I think it's in the news today is that over the past 20 years, uh, our dependency on very long supply chains have increased due to the globalization of the world. And as COVID has kind of moved through uh, the world economies, we've seen our supply chains stressed or taxed, and we've seen shortages either knee-jerk shortages due to consumers being nervous and stocking up on things or real shortages due to factories being shut down due to COVID in their environment. So that's turned everybody's, uh, everybody started listening and they started going, really, what's, what's this supply chain thing? And now it's part of our normal discussion. Thanks, Art. I think that, that sets us up nicely for the for the rest of the conversation. Thanks for that. So I think what we'll do first, we'll have a chat maybe about some of the operational short-term challenges uh, the companies are experiencing right now and, and what they're doing about them. And then we'll go and have a look at maybe some more strategic items. So Dave, um, what, what kind of acute challenges have you been noticing around the place among your clients? I, I think the one of the big issues that, that drives this whole process is the forecast. Mm. And, 
you know, knowing how much you're going to need in this COVID world, um, what, what is demand going to look like? It, here in the U.S., 70% of our economy is based on consumer spending, which is just a phenomenal amount. When that, when that consumer spending drops off, um, so does demand and so does the need for supply chain. So as Art was saying, you know, the, one of the issues, of course, is uh, what I call this just-in-case inventory that people want, not just in time, but uh, overconsumption of demand, which, of course, carries with it a cost. So I think that's in this post-COVID world, that's really one of the big, um, big issues. Government spending for capital equipment, um, like Art and I were just talking about a fire truck company that we both have experience with, uh, government spending is way off because tax revenues are way off. So this, this whole world is um, kind of in a, in a bit of an upheaval. And um, with that, I think I'll turn it over to someone else to talk about this. Yeah, so uh, Diane, what are you seeing uh, as kind of acute issues with clients of yours around the place? Well, I, I will definitely uh, echo what Dave just mentioned about the forecasting side of things. I, I've heard and I'm working with clients who are, you know, really concerned about their forecasting tools and are they, uh, you know, are they responsive enough? Are they anticipating uh, what they need? And, and with the COVID, some of my clients uh, saw, you know, massive spikes where where they were not prepared with the supply. So working with their suppliers, trying to pull that inventory overseas and trying to pull it from locations that, you know, they were not prepared to has been a challenge overall. Um, I, I will add on as well uh, in the warehousing realm is I, I do know that I, I'm working with clients and I know it's it's been a popular topic of interest, which is how do uh, companies utilize their warehousing space and do they have enough space to uh, handle their requirements and how do they leverage efficiencies through their warehousing? So it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a hot topic and I'm sure Art and Dave had you know, comments along there. And then the last thing I I will add, Patrick, before we go forward is, uh, is just how big of an impact uh, the increase in e-commerce has been on my clients. That one has been a major, uh, a major trend throughout uh, each of my client projects. Okay. So, um, one of you, I think it was Art, mentioned, no, maybe Dave, you mentioned this thing regarding government spending and tax revenues. You want to elaborate a bit on that? Do you mean that the spending and revenues are down uh, in the U.S.? Is that what you're seeing? Oh, substantially. You know, if, if people are out of work, they're not paying taxes. Mm-hmm. Yet government spending, um, I was talking to a, a buddy of mine in Chicago last night, and he was saying that uh, in Chicago, the last thing in the world they ever want to do is is try to lay off employees when they don't have demand for the employees because they're all union folks. Yeah. And we were di- discussing the private sector versus the public sector. And in the public sector, when, when, when contraction is necessary, we tend to respond to it. In, in government, they tend not to do that, but their revenues are way off sales tax revenues. Uh, Dan was saying last night that he used to send uh, a couple of thousand dollars a month to the state of Illinois in sales tax. He said last month he sent $50. So think about that. (laughs) $50 versus $2,000. 
Um, and and it, it, that's not an aberration just for his business or his industry. Mm-hmm. This is happening across the board. So this has to be affecting supply chains. If, if demand is not stimulative, then then we have a a, a pretty serious issue mm-hmm. to deal with. Yeah, yeah, we'll run out of cash. Yeah. Um, okay, maybe we, we, we'll come back to that. And we'll, we'll talk about maybe what the what the Fed is is thinking and what uh, Congress are thinking they're going to do with regard to um, priming the economy if they are going to do that or or what the current state of play is. But I just want to come back a little bit to this issue of the of the forecast. So I've come across a situation with a company in consumer pharma, and they have several several products going on at the same same plant. And one product, uh, because of COVID, is through the roof. So their their demand for it has has grown by something like sixty um, percent. Um, so it's related to you know treating fever and so on. And another product, which is more of a kind of a cosmetic product, because people are not going out. Their main markets for this are in places like Brazil and. Uh, Africa and Saudi Arabia and places like this. People people are not going out and therefore the demand for this product has gone through the floor. So it, it's as if the whole forecasting thing is just totally out the window. So there's no forecasting system is going to be able to deal with that. Are, are, are these types of things that you guys have seen happening as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. And any, uh, any, any insights into how people are coping? Well, with- you know, what... Would one of my one of my clients are basically having uh, sales and operation planning meeting every forty eight to seventy two hours yeah. to attack the changes, and they're saying, "Well, we need to improve our forecast. We need to improve our forecast." And, and I had a tremendous debate. I think it was in April with the CEO of a business, and I said, "The problem you have is." not your forecast being inaccurate because forecasts are always inaccurate. The issue is right. the length of your lead times. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we had 15, 20 years of very predictable demand and we got complacent and we let our lead time stretch out. Now that we're having, you know, this huge disruption, we're seeing the impact that lead times have when your forecasts are inaccurate due to this disruption. So with my clients, uh, this one in particular, we put in sales and operation planning, basically rinse and repeat every 72 hours going through looking at the changes because no system can respond that fast. Forecasting as they know it is just not the tool to use anymore, is it? I mean, you cannot forecast in this kind of uh, situation with rolling lockdowns and you don't know when they're coming. You don't know when they're going to end. You don't know how long they're going to stay. So on. Yep. And it was, you know, they were getting information from the sales group for when a factory was going to open and it was always wrong. And so they just had to keep pushing it out, pushing it out, pushing it out. And everybody's forecast or their swag on it was very, very optimistic. So we're taking what people said and lopping 25% off of it and then rinsing and repeating. Then you saw areas within the medical field that were just skyrocketing and you had to dig into the bill of materials and find out which, what areas did those parts impact and do the opposite to them. So it was manhandling it. Okay. Then you throw in the things with the illness moving through the society that overwhelmed people. And uh, it's been taxing on supply chain individuals and leadership and businesses to handle this much transformation or this much disruption at one time. Yeah. 
And then maybe coming back to this issue of money and people's income and so on, and the discontinuity that that may introduce into the supply chain. In Europe, uh, essentially, there has been a kind of a a breakthrough, a kind of a Hamiltonian moment in in Europe, whereby the European Central Bank uh, is going to inject a huge um, stimulus into the European economy. And also, it's the first time that it's being done at a European level. So we never had, if you like, uh, a fiscal union to go with our currency union. So it's the first time we've seen the start of a fiscal union. But the United States is both a currency union and a fiscal uh, union, and you print your own currency and you can print as much of it as you want. So do you anticipate that the the Fed uh, and through Congress are going to flood your economy with, um, with money in the coming months to keep it going over the next 12 to 24 months? I think it's a it's a really difficult political issue here. Um, the Republicans uh, don't want to do deficit spending any more than they have to, so they're they're going to be more constrained. And while Democrats under Joe Biden are probably going to want to provide some relief, so it's a it's a really difficult issue. I, I had thought we would do something before the election. Um, but there was there was not enough will uh, between the two political parties to do that. So mm. um, very, very, very tough issue. There's a lot of people that are suffering. Let me give you an example of a supply chain issue. If you think about food, um, restaurants had just begun to open here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and they were at 25 percent capacity and then getting up to 50 percent capacity. Well, now all of a sudden with COVID exploding again, they're, they're going to shut down indoor dining. And so a lot of restaurateurs are saying, my God, we just bought inventory to yeah. support what we thought the demand was going to be because people were tired of staying home. And now that now they're thinking about all the waste that they're going to have of all the produce and other things. And uh, it, it's a really diff- difficult situation for these uh, solopreneurs that run these restaurants. Very difficult. Diane, uh, something, another thing I've been seeing, I just want to run this past you. So um, guys have been, uh, guys and gals have been complaining about restrictions on uh, business travel. And um, it kind of surprised me as well, what's the, what's, what's the issue? And the issue seems to be, um, one, the qualification and validation of suppliers, whether of materials or equipment, and also the repair, maintenance and commissioning, particularly of new production lines and so on. Have you come across this issue among your clients and any feedback in re- regard to solutions and how people are getting around it? Well, certainly with the restrictions and, and not traveling, it's been doing uh, doing more with less in general. Um, I, I don't know that my clients are, uh, you know, the discussions we're having around this is what, how can we be creative and how can we uh, address these particular situations? Um, the, the really big issue is is how. So in, in general, I would say if uh, we can come up with solutions around uh, how we can maybe limit these repairs or how can we maybe work virtually, um, I know that a lot of my my conversations with clients uh, in general, you know, we've we've been used to in person, we've been used to kickoff meetings on in projects, and uh, and in general, uh, it's been easier said than done. But it has been somewhat of a, a an easy transition to a remote working, um, and and really prioritizing what should be done in person, yeah. um, and yeah. deciding you know what what qualifies now as in person. 
Yeah, I've seen some uh, in some situations, um, and maybe um, Art or Dave might want to jump in on this. I've seen uh, technology, say, for example, where an engineer who's remote, who's the, who's the person with the the knowledge with regard to, say, a specialized piece of equipment, is mm -hmm. directing a person who's already on site with regard maybe to maintenance or or some other validation or verification. Have you seen the, that type of technology being deployed uh, among your clients? Yes and no. The issue that I'm seeing is people are scrambling to find what I call tier two and three suppliers or sub-suppliers that are more localized. And with that, a lot of times that those suppliers don't have some of the technical resources bigger suppliers have. Yeah. So they're scrambling to work through some of the engineering details or the the first piece, uh, the ISR requirements. And a lot of that is face-to-face -face discussions. And they might only be a couple states away in, you know, in the United States, mm -hmm. but you cannot necessarily get there. Or they could be in Canada, which is only maybe from if you're in northern part of the United States, it could be 50 or 75 miles away and travel restrictions. So they're struggling with the procurement team and the SQAs to get in to have those really fine-tuned, nuanced discussions where you almost have to pick up a piece and show exactly what's happened. I've been on meetings where they're literally doing it on Zoom, where they're holding them up, showing it and with pencils and, you know, and calipers and everything going through it. But there's still that element of going out to the machine with a group of four people looking at what's going and pulling a part off the machine and inspecting at that point in time. That's missing. And we're struggling with that. And I've been using the term people being overwhelmed. Uh, Dave brought up the changes in demand. You have this whole back end of supply chain that's trying to manage that. Then you have another group that's trying to ramp up other suppliers and bring them in. And they're taxed and overwhelmed. And uh, I'll throw this in and I'll be quiet. And you throw in the aspect of the schools being closed and families struggling with childcare and elder care and this disruption at work, they're stressed. And I can't, I'm impressed with what we've done. You know, you look at what's been done and you set back in five, 10 years, we're going to look at and we're going to go, wow, what was accomplished? But then you look at some of the negative inputs. It's like, it just speaks to the resilience of people around the world. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll zoom out a little and we'll come up a bit higher level and maybe look at some of the strategic uh, issues that are arising after that kind of journey through some of the acute uh, operational issues. So I'm beginning to see people paying more attention to their strategic supply chain relationships. And you kind of touched on that there, Art, when you're talking about, you know, people looking closer to home for solutions for things that they have up to now got from very far away. Um, so what are you guys seeing in terms of either the, um, the solidifying of supply chain relationships or more attention to the ones that are truly important and the changes that are going on in the way people are bringing things maybe a bit closer to home. What are you, what are you seeing there? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, I've seen where there is a new understanding of what a partner is through early on, 
uh, a couple of my clients were saying, let's delay uh, accounts payable, stop parts from coming in. And it was just pushing suppliers over the edge. As the owner of those businesses or the CEOs started talking, they started realizing what they're doing. And now they're adopting more of what Toyota has done for years, the partnership aspect. And another thing that I've seen is the acquisition of a couple really big acquisitions with my clients buying suppliers to where they're starting to integrate them in because the supplier needed an influx of cash. And at the same time, uh, I always say you want to get a supplier partner that makes you better and makes your services better for your customer. Mm-hmm. And what you're seeing is people starting to do these joint ventures or buying one another. And I started seeing that in the past 30 days. I've seen a couple acquisitions that way. Interesting. Uh, Diane, any take on this from your side? Yeah. What I'll add is, uh, you know, working with, uh, like I mentioned on the warehousing side, uh, working with my my clients who are, uh, you know, deciding potentially they do not have the space or based on, uh, you know, if current trends uh, persist, they will not have the space in in the near term future. Uh, Reaching out to their partners like a 3PL or 4PL uh, has been critical, trying to share information, trying to analyze uh, information so they can share Great insights, I think, has been one of the uh, takeaways. And and how do we share information? And and is it does it need to be more automated? Does it need to be, um, you know, quicker? Like Art was mentioning, you know, an SNOP process that is happening, you know, uh, every day or every other day or you know within hours, trying to spread that information as quickly as possible. So yeah. I think it's uh, it's who do you trust and and are you willing to share that information and how are you doing so and are you effective at it? Mm-hmm. So I think the current situation is a great opportunity for 3PL, 4PL logistic service providers to actually step up and to demonstrate to their clients what they really can do. Because I think often, and I've I've worked on both sides of that equation, both as the advisor to the manufacturer, as well as being an advisor to the logistic service provider. And too often it's viewed in a simplistic transactional um, way, which doesn't benefit either side and it's hard for them to get out of that and I would imagine that in the course of this crisis uh, in some cases they're going to learn a lot about each other and those relationships are going to become more solid I would think so Dave you mentioned earlier this idea of just-in-case inventory. And that kind of brings into play the 3PL, the third-party logistics service provider, because people don't have spare warehouses sitting around beside their factory. So they need to um, find people uh, in the logistics services business who are going to help them with this. What have you been seeing there in terms of this um, just-in-case inventory and its growth at the moment? Um, That's probably an older concept that I've seen here in the U.S., Um, Again, because they don't have accurate forecasts, since they don't have dependable forecasts, you, you know, you bring parts on board. The, the idea of of adding warehouse space to me is kind of repugnant because, <laughs> because it means that your efficiencies have gone down. And so you're, you've got a lot more stuff available to do things. There's a carrying cost of having all that inventory. I, I don't know what the current estimate is of that. They used to say it was about 30% a year on raw materials. Is that still a valid uh, figure, Art and Diane? 
Yeah, it depends on the industry, but anyway, from 38 to 58% I use with my clients on carrying cost of inventory. 38 to 58. Wow. Yeah. So, so that's a, that's a really, really big penalty. I, I did want to make one other point. Um, Foxconn is one of the great outsourcing companies in the world of electronics. These are the guys who assemble iPhones. Yeah. But iPhones is one of their product lines, but they also do uh, a lot of capital equipment in the semiconductor capital equipment industry. And so they're, they're a very sophisticated company and they were building a huge plant in Wisconsin to bring online and create jobs. And my understanding is, is that they started the process and it's never going to get completed. Mm-hmm. So there's some real challenges with saying, let's bring low level components or low level items here to do it cost effectively, like building iPhones, you have to be very strategic about what you intend to do and what kind of jobs that you can create. Uh, and, here in the and, and the sub supplier network underneath that to feed that. Yes. Because that's, I've had a couple clients, they run to go, you know, insource some items. And I kept saying, whoa, where are you going to get the parts? Where are you yeah. going to get the material from? And they hadn't thought about that. And I said, let's work with getting those suppliers regionally or closer to us, build that network before you insource it or go at a smaller rate to where they can figure out their process. Yeah. And Art, I've told you this story before about the um, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturer uh, based here in Europe who had their API coming from an Asian country and they hit the buffers around March, April, whereby the government, the local government in the Asian country uh, imposed um, an export ban. So these kind of situations, and I know you, you've been talking a lot about the kind of reshoring uh, aspects of the changes that are coming. So the, the, do you see a relationship between those two things with companies getting caught out that way? They're going to be thinking hard about yeah. reshoring, about looking for dual supply close to the home? Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to elaborate more, but I, I do see, I see that happening. And I see, yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's no, I guess, I guess it's, it's inevitable really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. So, uh, well guys, you know, time flies when we're having fun. So uh, the clock <laughs> is where the clock is. So it's been a pleasure talking to you all. Many thanks for being here with us today. Yeah, thank, thank you for you, having Patrick. me. Thanks, very, thanks Dave. Very welcome. Thanks, Diane. Thanks, Art. And thanks, yeah. Dave. And thanks also to our listeners. And remember that if you would like to know more about how I can help you to formulate and implement international business strategies that deliver, please check out my blog on albalogistics.com. Uh, my Twitter at hashtag albalogistics. can pick up my book, International Supply Chain Relationships on Amazon, Google Books or Apple Books. Thank you for listening and keep well until next time.